listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR. You are listening to the Breakfasters podcast for the week 4th of September to 8th of September. This week was a huge one. Uh, was, yeah. It was, wasn't it? Big well, week. Lots of guests. We started off uh, having a bit of a chat to uh, feminist icon Laurie Penny about her new book, Bitch Doctrine, which is very interesting. Uh, we were also visited by Inua Ellums. He is a uh, poet and artist from the UK. He's out here performing a show called Black T-Shirt Collection and it was we had a really fascinating chat so with him. He's met the Queen twice. He's met the Queen twice and he's got a funny story about what happened when he met the Queen. Uh, and we also had a bit of a chat about relationships, if it's good to be single or not. Yeah. Which apparently none of our partners heard, so that's good. <laughs> um, we also got to talk to uh, the Kates from uh, the catering show and my mates, Kate McLean and Kate McCartney, about their new show, Get Kraken, which is on ABC. And also we had a, um, a somewhat serious discussion about the serious issue of uh, marriage equality and the High Court decision that the Postal Survey is going ahead. And Jeff's not here because he had to duck out early, didn't he? Yes. So hello from Jeff, nonetheless. <laughs> Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. You're tuned to Breakfasters on Triple R with Jeff Geraldine and Sarah. Laurie Penny is a writer and journalist. She publishes in Vice, The Guardian and many other publications and is a columnist and contributing editor at The New Statesman. Her latest book is entitled Bitch Doctrine, Essays for Dissenting Adults, and she's joining us now in the Breakfast Studio. Welcome. Hi, how are you doing? Very well. good. Thank you. As that introduction suggests, you're a pro- prolific writer published all over the place. This is a collection of previously published essays. Mm-hmm. How did you go about selecting and organising the material for this? Well, um, so this book was intended to be you know, a collection of the feminist and Uh, anti-racist and anti-capitalist writing I've been doing over the past few years and the idea was that when we were putting it together oh it would come out in the middle of a Hillary Clinton presidency and um, you know the idea Mm. behind these these essays would really be to sort of push the mainstream feminist narrative a little bit more to the left and make that contribution and I submitted the manuscript on the 4th of November last year (laughs) and um, so on the 9th of November well on the 10th after the whole world seemed to explode uh, there was me frantically on the phone to my editor saying can I call it back please (laughs) so um, so it has a lot of new stuff in there a lot of recent stuff with the reporting I've been doing in the US and it has a a new introduction which was written in a haze of caffeine and fear um, in four days um, after the US election and it really does read like that Um, I feel like the rest of the essays are you know I try to be funny when I'm talking about serious things I try to crack jokes but the introduction is a bit a thousand yard stare everything is awful what do we do um, and but I feel that's appropriate. Yeah, you do talk a, a lot about Trump. Um, you know, early in the book, um, since his election, um, has has it been as bad as you were expecting? Like it's been six months. How has it been? Well, it's been different, hasn't it? Mm. Um, the fact that the planet has not yet exploded, although obviously there are there are escalating tensions with North Korea, anything could happen kind of makes it feel like we're still in the co- the phony war phase mm. of this this cultural conflict but really that the change in discourse as a political writer just as a political writer and you know as a white person who travels and has many privileges um the change has been really profound um the way that just in terms of of the agenda of what we're talking about I never thought that I would have to spend my time in 2017 defending people's basic right not to be put in jail for emigrating to a different country because they're in fear of their lives, defending people's basic right to bodily autonomy and to not be beaten up for using the bathroom of their choice. I kind of felt we were done about a lot of these issues. But it's the, the thing about Trump, um, one, of the, one, of the many, one of the many things, is that when somebody like that is occupying the centre of political discourse and is in the White House in the nominally most powerful position in the world, he makes it easier for the people who aren't quite as bad 
to appear normal. I mean, you look at somebody like Mike Pence. Mike Pence, Mike Pence vice president, is a extremist Christian fanatic who hates women, hates queer people, has you know very fundamentalist opinions, and he makes it look like everybody with slightly less fundamentalist opinions is just a reasonable a reasonable person of faith. Then yeah. that's the problem. Mm. There was an argument that uh, Trump's presidency came about because he latched on to a feeling that existed within America for the last few years. Is that something that you noticed in your time in America or when you were writing? Did you predict that Trump was going to be where he is? Um, the only people I know who really who who's told me, no, this guy's going to win from the outset were the writers and activists of colour that I know. Yeah, right. Um, I feel that um, the people, a, a lot of people who um, are from the more maybe naive uh, white white side of the left deceived ourselves and said, oh, no, surely it can't be that bad. But, you know, people of colour in the US have been saying for a while, no, it really is this bad. And some of the most, you know, some of the most biting commentary I saw uh, immediately after the election was uh, was writers and activists of colour saying, oh, 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 now you feel unsafe in America, do you? Now you feel like it's not your country, walking down the street. Oh, it's interesting that you feel like that. But welcome, we've been here our whole lives. It's um, When you're talking about Trump uh, responding to a feeling in America, uh, the feeling is racism. The mm. feeling is um, an atmosphere of base-level white supremacy that has never really left... And, you know, violent misogyny, an undercurrent of bitter and resentful sexism, which is bound up with the way that race is expressed and experienced. Um, This is obviously this is not just a phenomenon of the past few years, but I don't know if if you guys have ever traveled in the US and maybe this is more obvious to people who travel to the United States and aren't from there, but the baked in racism of that culture is really staggering and it's I'm not trying to argue that Britain where I'm from is not a racist place it is or that Australia is not a racist place it obviously is but America is really quite unique in its in its twistedness in its in how messed up it is about about that particular thing and everything comes down to that class politics come down to that race race sorry uh, gender politics come down to that and it's been a it's been a real education for me as a white foreign person trying to write about those politics. Mm. As you mentioned, you are originally from Britain. In the wake of mm-hmm. Brexit, the British left seemed to be plunged into despair. Then came an election in which the Labour Party did much yeah. better than anyone expected on a much more left-wing platform than they've had for years. What's the mood now, now like? Well, um, Honestly, for the past couple of years, I've personally tried to stay out of Labour politics. Uh, I'm a supporter of Jeremy Corbyn. I think he's a fantastic thing. Um, I uh, am not really interested in infighting on the Labour left, on on the British Labour left, um, because at the end of the day, they'll sort themselves out or they won't. But honestly... um, what has been really surprising to everybody, including a number of Labour supporters and Labour members, is how much appetite there is for somebody who's just standing on a platform of of anti-austerity, of real socialist and social democratic change. Turns out people are quite into that. Um, <laughs> you know, people are quite into you know not having to work two jobs for poverty pay and not being you know, turned away from hospital and not having to go into fifty thousand pounds worth of debt for you know, for a degree that their parents got for free. Those are quite good things, and young people do actually care. Um, but honestly, at the last election. Uh, part of it was because the Conservative Party has utterly no clue what it's doing and no idea how much people hate them or why. They have really... I'm sorry, it's Australia, so I can, I can say this. They have really shat the bed on this one. <laughs> and really, all Labour needed to do was not mess it up. And and they successfully didn't mess it up and did far more than that. Um, it is it's hilarious to see the Tories fumbling around f- because the way they operate is uh, the way people um, on the on the 
traditional right wing of uh, mainstream politics have operated for a while is just assuming that they are entitled to power. It, but not because of what they think or what they do, but because of who they are, because they are the natural inheritors of that kind of office. Um, maybe particularly in the UK, where we have that baked-in sense of aristocratic deference. Uh, Malcolm Turnbull's got a certain amount of. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, you do write about in the book uh, you your discovery of feminism through Jermaine Greer, mm-hmm. kind of reading the female eunuch for the first time. She's become an increasingly controversial figure in the movement. How do you feel about her contribution to feminism now in light of, I guess, the last 10 Uh, to 15 years? Well, asking me specifically about Germaine Greer is difficult because it's kind of like asking somebody about, you know, their slightly problematic auntie. Yes. And I want to say, ah, well... I can't, there are no excuses for it. I really believe that Jermaine Greer is not only fundamentally wrong about what she thinks about transgender people, but doing active damage because, of course, she is a fantastic writer, which is one of the things that first drew me to her work. I was 11, 12 years old and first reading these things. It was so accessible, it was vibrant. I want to be a feminist writer someday, and hey, I am. But because she writes in this powerful, compelling way, she's probably done more damage to the to the trans rights movement and to the modern LGBT movement than a writer of less power might have done. Um, I don't think that's a reason to throw out all of Greer's thought. Um, I think it's a reason for Greer to really just not talk about transgender politics again and please just let it go. Just let it go. You're wrong. It's okay to be wrong about something. And you know, there's lots of things that Greer was right about. The way that she discusses sexual freedom and sexual liberation is light years ahead of her time. And that discourse really needs to come back. The idea of, of cultural castration of female people is massively important. Um, it's, uh, but yeah, I just, I regret that that's the hill that she's chosen to die on intellectually, because I think, I hope that she could be better than that. Obviously, a lot of feminists within the movement are like, well, it's just one writer, we can write them off. But Jermaine Greer really matters to me, really. Um, they were getting her archive together recently. I don't know if you saw this. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, somebody, they found um, they found the letter that I wrote to her. <gasps> no, really? I, yeah, they sent me a, a photocopy of it and said, can we use this? I was like, oh, my God, you found it? What did you uh, did, you, did you read it and go and remember yeah. what you'd written? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I had a little campaign when I was 11 to get girls to wear trousers at our school. We didn't win. But it was the 90s. You know, I wrote her a letter in my gel pens. Wow. About <laughs> and she wrote back to me. She wrote back to me on a little postcard with koalas on it, which I kept for years. I, I lost it in a house move, which I, and I was so sad about that. So when I got that email saying, oh, we found your letter, I was over the moon. It was oh, amazing. Wow. Like, baby, baby feminist Laurie, <laughs> just discovering politics in my best hand. And you can see, you know, uh, I don't know if you had them here, but those uh, those ink erase pens, yes. you could erase over and then you could write on top of them. It was all done in that because I clearly thought about it so much and I'd erased bits. It was like six double-sided pages. Oh. Bless. Oh, it hurts my heart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like we could keep you here forever, but we should let you go. The book is Bitch Doctrine, Essays for Dissenting Adults Out Through Bloomsbury. We've been talking to its author, writer and journalist, Laurie Penny. Thanks so much. Thank you. Three Triple R. Hey, guys, I was getting some stories ready for the news, and I mm-hmm. found this little one I thought you might be interested in. How about this new research in the Netherlands says that getting married or being in a relationship makes you a better person. Being married or being in a relationship? Like it says either marriage, or. but I th- think it's just relationships in general. It says that in... Like a pr- committed partnership. Yes, it helps foster self-control. Does oh, it? Yeah. And I, forgiveness. I, I think I'm the least self-controlled around Andrew. <clears throat> Do you know what I mean? Like he probably sees the the, the least, the worst the least thing yeah, the, well, yeah, yeah. It's the yeah, anyway. Don't you um, show self-control in other areas that? Um, yeah, you gotta have give and take. Don't that's you? true. You are kind of constantly negotiating. That really is what a relationship is. Anyway, I was just thinking about it. What do you reckon? Do you reckon that like you end up because you know we're all in 
relationship. Yep. I'm sure we've all gone through periods of being single. Sure. We went through many. What a time many that was. of being single. <laughs> what a roller coaster. <laughs> do you reckon it, which do you think makes you the better person? I think a balance between both. So I think it's really good to have both those experiences in your life. So I've kind of mm. had a period where I was in a relationship, then had a period out of that for a couple of years, yeah. which was really good for me because I think in that time I kind of, you know, was a bit selfish in a good way, that kind yeah. of like, all right, I'm just going to think about me, not my partner's problems and kind of get um, – I can just hear you breathing a little bit. <laughs> what? No, that's so- all right. Oh, you were just very close <laughs> to the microphone. Yeah. I'm sorry, I appreciate that. Um, no, but do you know what I mean? And so in, during that period, I was really, I just kind of did things for myself that were really good and thought a lot about the, the shit sides of me and the good sides of me. You know, I used it as a, t- I used it as a time for self-improvement, <laughs> as Oprah would say. <laughs> oh, man, uh, I was single for such a long time that I went through everything. And it's that... Classic cliche thing of, you know, you're never going to find anyone until you sort your own shit out. Totally. That's what I'm, and I think that once you've kind of got something, yeah. once you've discovered some stuff about yourself, this is really like, turning into an Oprah thing. I'm going to stop like, talking. You can listen. Once, yeah, basically, once I went from like just vacuuming my bed to changing the sheets. <laughs> that your bed. <laughs> You didn't do that, do you? I might have done it. Yeah, oh I, did it I did it once. I did it once. Strange, 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 strange that someone didn't snap you up. <laughs> that actually, I'm sorry. That in your bed sounds more difficult than changing in the sheets. <laughs> just vacuuming just one day and there was like, so I'm, I'm obviously, I'd been eating in bed. There was like crumbs. I went, oh, I'll just vacuum them up. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, oh, well, Kath, you lucky bit. <laughs> I was going to say, because maybe, you know, maybe in a relationship you could maybe coast a bit. I don't know. That, that like, you know, when, when when you're single, you sort of, you've got to put your best self out there. You know that old yeah. thing where you, people break up and then you, like, lose five kilos. Yeah, totally, and you yeah, totally suddenly become you're looking, really interesting yeah. again. And, um, I, don't, I don't know. I become really interesting <laughs> again. <Jesus. laughs> I don't know. The first time I was thinking about it, because uh, Steph was down on the weekend mm. and... Um, because she lives in the state, when she does come down, I always feel impelled. I've got to clean the house up. Yeah, you, you know what I mean. Oh, like, yeah, you got to show your best self. Yeah. Particularly because I wonder if she's listening. Yeah, probably. Hi, yeah. Steph. Hello, Steph. What are you going to say? <laughs> this is a dangerous talk break for all of us. <laughs> well, we- <laughs> no, bail out. Yeah, bail out. <laughs> I, look, I was also in a long distance relationship with Andrew for a period of time, and I remember the pressure that I felt when we would see each other because you'd had to be your best self. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Like you haven't yeah. seen each other for however many days. You've got three days to see each other and you're thinking, I can't, we can't have a fight, which would put this stress on things because you're trying to be like, don't ever fight, don't ever fight, you can't. You've you know, got this amount of time, yeah, don't stuff this don't up. Don't stuff this up and you want to make everything interesting and thrilling and that's just not how life is sometimes. No. It? It's kind of good though because you feel like I have found since we've been living in a separate city, you do make more of an effort to do interesting stuff when yes. you see like, you know. Kind of go on proper dates. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 uh, Totally, and, you know, I would never have um, vacuumed yeah, my blinds. <laughs> I didn't even know you had to vacuum blinds. Look at you two. Yeah. <laughs> Vacuuming. Where have you vacuumed? Oh, where haven't I vacuumed? <laughs> Look, Sarah, it's the key to successful relationships, vacuuming. Jesus. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know if vacuuming was something that I... Yeah, I, tell you, oh, it I made feel like we should give Andrew a call. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's not do it, that. It did make a huge difference, I think, in my personal... Oh, so I just think that... Going through, I was single through most of my 20s, all of my 20s, um, and I think it's made a huge difference in the relationship that Kath and I have now. Well, you're very developed as a per. Well, not that you can't, I don't want to, everyone choose your own thing in life, but I think sometimes there's a <laughs> Don't not, take advice from us. Don't take advice from us. <laughs> sometimes, you know, yeah, like you said, you kind of make all your mistakes and work your own shit out and then you can go, all yeah. right, now, I'm a, now I, I can you just focus appreci- on someone else. Yeah, appreciate a, a relationship a bit more when you're, a bit older. Yeah. Did you go on many bad dates and stuff? Yeah. I went on dates with men. Oh, well, (laughs) they would have been terrible. (laughs) For me. Yeah. And them. And them. Yeah. I guess on both sides, for sure. I remember when I was single in my early 20s, my friends that were in relationships at the time would do the best. They thought they were doing the right thing, but they'd encourage me to go on any date. Yeah. So there was no kind of filter, whereas I'd say my instinct is telling me don't go on a date with this guy that you kissed at, uh, 
what was the name of that place that's on Johnson Street in Collingwood? It's open. Oh, the oh, laundry. Nah, open until five a.m. and it's that oh. pub with the pokies. <laughs> yeah. The, the, um, oh, gone blank. Oh, I know where you're. Well, that way. Do you know what I mean? Like you picked up, you picked up that guy. You know, maybe don't, and you exchange numbers, and maybe don't go on that date. And I, but my friends were in relations with me, like, I think it'd be really good for you, Sarah, to go on this date, and then you turn up and you find out. They're a backpacker and they actually sleep in the park, you know? Like, yeah. these are the, this was... It's quite the case. Yeah, it was, you know, it's... it's the, the bed that needs vacuuming is looking pretty good. Yeah, suddenly I was like, well, single it is for me for but a while. Do you, do you think the friends are trying to live through you, though? I it's think kind I of like, you know, they... Their their life maybe is a bit routine or whatever. Sarah's crazy single. Go on the dates. Oh, uh, I don't think so. I think they were just trying to. Maybe they just saw me come. Oh, the Tankerville. Thanks, Paulie P. Just texted oh, her through to say the Tankerville. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it wasn't you, Paulie. Uh, <laughs> You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio Three Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. You're tuned to Breakfasters here on Triple R with Jeff Geraldine and Sarah. Get Kraken is a new comedy that you can catch on ABC TV on Wednesday nights or on iView. We're joined in the studio now once again by its two stars and creators, Kate McLennan and Kate McCartney. Welcome both. Kate. Oh, Hello. Thank you for having us. Hello, mate. I Lovely. feel like it's that we're coming in for a chat, but mainly we're just coming in to have a nice time with Harry and Lloyd. <laughs> um, I've got Harry on my lap and I'm having the best time. Yeah. Don't lick the mic, mate. <laughs> yeah, I was just saying off air, um, Lloyd is a bit barky today. Oh, so. No, he's not. He's very quiet. He's, it, did you... Did Isn't I do that, something did, to Did it? you miss the last 15 <laughs> minutes? <laughs> no. no, he had a little bit of, He got excited. People came in the room. The Kates are here. Uh, he got excited. Yeah. He's probably barking at your kids sitting out there. Oh, that's true. Sensing maybe danger. It's <laughs> <laughs> a, a good insult, Lloyd. <laughs> last time we had you guys in... We were talking about the catering show, um, which you did for YouTube and then for ABC. Now how you're the, famous. Yeah. Now, yeah, yeah. The, the other day, McLennan um, had a fan approach her in a women's. Where was it? I was at the pool. I just taken my kid for swimming lessons, and so it's full, full nude lady having a chat. <laughs> oh <to me>. my <laughs> god! <laughs> <laughs> Hello, nude lady, if you're listening. <laughs> Put a leg up, dry herself thoroughly. I'm sorry my kid kept staring at you. (laughs) First time she's seen another nude lady, she was like, hang on, you're different to my mum. You're different to my nude lady. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, that's that's where we're at now. Good. (laughs) (laughs) Things have stepped up. And neither of us feel comfortable leaving the house. No, anymore. it's weird. It's yeah. The show the show went on air last week, and I basically haven't left the house at can, all. Can you tell us what's the main difference between you know the catering show and and Get Cracking? Well, this show is it's like the same characters. We've sort of plonked them in the world of morning television, so mm. morning lifestyle breakfast TV. Um, so we talk a lot about. So we still talk about trends and social issues, but just not through the lens of food now. So, um, and we have guests as well, yeah, which has been really a relief. Fun. Um, <laughs> it's not all on us. Yeah, so that's sort you of can you blame know, them creative, creatively, you know, on the screen differences, and then you know, in terms of how it's been different for us, you it's, know, it's uh, longer. Made. We have to organise more childcare. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sam Neil was a guest on the first. Yeah. Episode. Yeah. How how did you get Sam Neil on the show? He like started sort of uh, tweeting us on Twitter, which is where you generally <laughs> tweet people. And um, he really and liked the catering show. Really yes. liked it because he's a he's a winemaker and oh. and stuff, and has a look posts excellent videos of like pigs and sheep and stuff. Very good stuff. Mm. High value content. <laughs> and um and then we were at the Logies just feeling very awkward because we clearly didn't belong there. <laughs> and um, then we were just, yeah, nervously sipping a drink and we heard we heard this, hello, Kates, and looked between <laughs> us and it was Jurassic Park's Sam Neill, his head directly, you know, between our, between our faces. Yeah. So he was sort of like too famous to be at the Logies and we were not famous enough. So we sort of found this common ground and we just... Hung out that night. It was oh, really man. weird. And then we needed someone really famous for this role. Mm. We were like, well, 
We'd sort of avoided asking him for a really long time because we knew if he didn't say yes, then we'd be screwed <laughs> in terms of the storyline. So, but we kind of had a feeling that he would be up for it because he's, yeah. he's mad as a cut snake. So um, <laughs> he, um, yeah, and he said yes. So that was lots of fun. The crew loved it. Everyone oh, on yeah. set just really, you could tell. <laughs> Like a real star. It was, yeah. You know, no one cared about us. Yeah, they were sick of us sick by of day us. two. And then so. Sam Neill came on. They're like, oh, okay, great. <laughs> this legitimizes my job. <laughs> so, yeah, that's how that all happened. What made you decide to do a morning show? Had you watched many of them before doing this or did you have to sit through them all for research? We did have to sit through them all for research. Um, it was more that we just couldn't keep like talking about food we just had nothing else to say plus we don't we don't leave the house and also there was a point where in the second season of the catering show we had Ronnie Cheng on as a guest but there was a point where he just accepted the job on um the daily show as one of their reporters and um he may not it looked like he may not have been able to do the show so and so we had to think of another episode to fill in the gap where his episode once was and we couldn't think of a single idea <laughs> So at which point, you Whatever know, we, we probably do. shouldn't commit to eight more episodes then. <laughs> we can't think of one idea. Yeah, we can't do just eight episodes of getting Uber Eats every night. <laughs> like, it's just not going to work. Yeah, of eating our toddler's crumbs. We yeah. just can't do that. So, yeah, we our producer... Um, he was like, why don't you do this? Sh- why don't you try doing a show about... That's not how he talks, Ed. Why don't you do a show about... Um, like a wolf howling at the moon. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was kind of like, yes, of course. That's what we should do. We should do a show about that. Cause, Makes it so much easier. Yeah, otherwise it was just going to be a very specific, like, oh, we're going to do a show about home renovations or we're going to do a show about gardening. Like, it was too specific, so... Uh, yeah, so breakfast television became this vehicle for all these other ideas. But you know, watching these shows, like you just they're so jam packed, full of content. Like we sort of said that they're like, oh yeah, Lloyd is growling at your kid. <laughs> <laughs> they met in the park yesterday. Lloyd was not into it. And, you know, Did you just hear enough. that sound? Yeah. I, mean, I, mean, I thought that was honestly. I, I thought was there was like, like a, a subway station underneath yeah. us. <laughs> Um, yeah, so the, the morning TV shows, breakfast TV shows are just like this. It's like overnight they capture the internet and then just mm. filter it through to an audience. So, you know, you if you tried watching it for the full, you know, start to finish, I think you'd have a nervous breakdown by yeah. the end of it. It's, you can watch we certainly w- did having yeah, no, the writing oh, no, process. Yeah. <laughs> McLennan, um, McLennan started on the project maybe, what, a month before I did. Yeah, wow, Lloyd. you were directing Edo's show. I was so directing, I yeah, Edo's show. So just went into a real... <laughs> <laughs> I went, she's real. Okay. I don't think my kids... Mercifully, I don't think my kids are aware of how upset Lloyd is. Um, but, uh, yeah, you went into a bit of a, a K-hole around it. I yeah. came in and you would you had really gone. I really lost the plot. Yeah, it was no good. Because, you know, you're reading stuff about, you know, South Korea doing <clears> nuclear <throat> testing in one article and then you flick to, you Mermaid know, another tab. Yeah. <laughs> it's just... It's, it's, it's the, just funny. I was, I was watching um, the first episode and it's this kind of savage, really funny depiction of morning TV. But I was thinking, there's something strangely familiar about this. And I was thinking, it's very close to the format of our show. Well, breakfast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Breakfast, right? Yeah. 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 That was a huge influence. Yeah. Oh, my God, maybe it's a satire on us. They're actually channeling Jeff, not Carrie Ann Kennelly. <laughs> we did, like, the radio, doing press for the catering show, like, we do a lot of radio interviews and um, they definitely informed, mm. particularly as the, there's one episode, well, the very last episode, where we really um, play with that idea of switching between hard-hitting news and then flicking to something really inane. And so we um, the gear change. So, yeah, there's we lots did, of that yeah. sort of threaded through it. We did a lot of press on the day that Prince died mm. for the catering show <laughs> oh, season two. So we would, you know, they'd come in and, you know, we'd come into these studios and have people go, we love you girls. You girls are so funny. Well, I just want to wine with you. you girls. And then they go, and now raspberry beret. <laughs> 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 that was not dissimilar to our experience <laughs> yeah, on the morning yeah, that Prince yeah. died. Have, have you had um, any feedback from people from those shows? 
We did um, ABC breakfast on the day the show went up last Wednesday and, like, we pitched it to them because we have a segment in, um, I think it's episode four, where it was directly inspired by something that happened on um, ABC breakfast. And so we told them that and we gave them the clip and, you know, we said this is, you know, when Virginia was clearly very uncomfortable. It turns out Virginia wasn't even in on that day. But anyway, in our minds it was Virginia being really uncomfortable. Mm. And... Um, and we thought that they'd be really into it, but they really sat on it for a good week to just check how they felt about it wow. <laughs> to see if they were okay with it. And then they all kind of went, yeah, yeah no, everyone's yeah, no, okay. It, it is funny. It, it's yeah. funny. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we haven't heard from Sunrise or the Today Show. Shocked. I'm shocked about that. <laughs> Sunrise, they, they used to get us on. We were on oh, yeah. twice, maybe? Twice. And then that yeah. Channel Nine morning show, they've asked us to be on a couple of times. Um, but not we've since never done the it. show. No, not since the show. <laughs> so I feel like maybe they're just going to stay right away. Yeah, that's all right. Was yeah. it a, this is a, quite a bigger show than, um, you know, these are longer episodes than mm. what the catering show was. Um, how, what's the difference between doing the two of them? Like you had your own set, you had like everything. Yeah, yeah the was pressure massive. was just. Just a lot more. Um, we got more stressed. Uh, we didn't what? see our families. We didn't see our families at all. Hi, Geraldine. It's nice to see you. Yeah, it's <laughs> good to see you. The only time that we saw you over the last 12 months is when you came in and filmed something. We really us, appreciate so really you doing that. Oh, I forget um, you're on an ep- what episode is that? I don't be, know, actually. Might be ep-, ep 4. Yeah. I think it's oh, ep 4. Stick around. In a scene <laughs> about in an advertorial that Helen Badu hosts, which is um, Edo's, character. Edo's character. Edo's and Edmunds for... Oh, yeah, sorry. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. I just presume everyone knows who Edo is. I don't know why. <laughs> <They should. laughs> um, yeah, so like the t- just the time. Like, you know, the catering show we could do over a few months, whereas this was supposed to be something that we could bang out pretty quickly, but it took us, like, it, it took us 12 months to do the whole show. Like kind of tonally it just meant that we got to play around with more things. We got sort of like little, there are little kind of, you know, little narratives in there that you probably won't notice on the first watch. Oh, my God, I was going to say, mm. I missed, there was so many, there's so many gags happening at once that you kind of have to go back and, yeah, like, watch yeah. it. look what's happening on the bottom of the screen or something that's happening in the background. Yeah, it's like you have to do a ticker watch, which yeah. is the, the info, the graphics running down the bottom. Yeah. Which we got lots of people to write those jokes. So we didn't write them. Are, we just uh-huh. trolled Twitter for good yeah. writers. <laughs> um, a lot of them are written by Beck Shaw and yeah. um, James Colley, who are very funny on Twitter. So, um yeah, we just and because they're sim- really simple, sort of you know short Twitter-like jokes. We're like, okay, just, we'll just we could outsource those ones. <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, hopefully next time if we get to do it again, we'll get more guest writers in and open up the world a little bit. The show is Get Cracking. It's on ABC TV on Wednesday night. You can also catch it on iview. We've been talking to the stars and creators, Kate McLennan, Kate McCartney. Thanks so much for coming. Thank you. Three triple. You're tuned to Breakfasters here on Triple R with Jeff, Geraldine and Sarah. Black T-shirt collection is a show that's on now at the Art Centre running until the 10th of September. It's written and performed by the poet, playwright and speaker in your Elms. He's joining us now in the Breakfasters studio. Welcome to Triple R. Hello. Good morning. Good, good morning. morning to you. <laughs> it's a croaky good morning. Sorry. Right. We have a very Let me try that again. <laughs> Hello. Good morning. <laughs> Despite the title, it's not a fashion show. It's a one-man show about two Nigerian brothers. What happens to them and what does it have to do with T-shirts? Uh, so various things kind of happen <laughs> to them. Um, but um, at the start of the play, um, there's a little guy called Matthew who's fostered into a house. Um, he's of a Christian background. They're from a Muslim background. And um, um, it turns out that Mohammed, um, the older brother... Um, is gay and because of that in Nigeria they have to leave the country because of the stringent um, anti-homosexual laws that are just currently present and operating in the country and because of that they have to leave the country Um, anyway Matthew is the younger Christian brother and has affinity with design and begins to design t-shirts so the boys begin to sort of make money from selling um, you know sort of bespoke design t-shirts when they're they're kids in school and then they grow up into the successful t-shirt business company run by these two foster brothers 
brothers and then they have to leave Nigeria. So the story is about the, the expansion of the business forced by their sort of forced immigration, having to leave the country and what happens to them from Nigeria through Egypt um, to the Europe, then across the world. And then it ends somewhere else, which I can't tell. <laughs> <laughs> uh, obvious question. You were born in Nigeria. You were forced to leave home yourself. How close to this, is this story to your own? It's, it's so close. It's pathetic. <laughs> like, like, there was no leap of imagination. You know, just thought, this happened, this happened. I'm going to write it into this character. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's very... It's based on my background. Uh, my mother was a Christian when she married my father, who was a Muslim. So I, could, I, I kind of grew up in a multi-faced um, um, household and like, I had to leave Nigeria when I was a kid. So a lot of my experience of trying to settle in, in, in life in the UK and across the world, really, are sort of the trials and tribulations that the boys um, go through in, in the black T-shirt collection. And also, when I was a kid, I used to design T-shirts for my friends and jackets and denim, stuff like that. So a lot of my creative sort of um, impetus and drive is written into the play as well. You are... Uh have been living in the UK now for the majority of your life, yet you're still not a permanent resident. Yeah. But you've met the Queen and, you you know, you're treated pretty wonderfully. Uh, Well, I want to know what it's like to meet the Queen, but also does this make you angry in any way about... No. I mean, I left when I was 12 and 32, right? I turned 33 in in October this year. So I've spent 21 years not belonging anywhere, really. So I'm kind of used to it. It's just uh, my modus operatus. It's just just how the cookie crumbles. So it doesn't make me angry anymore. I just kind of... um, um, it's just what it is. What is making me angry is the current anti-immigration rhetoric sweeping right across the West and across Australia, actually. The sort of right-wing rhetoric and xenophobic sort of just um, unchecked fear about of people who just come from other places. And one of the things that frustrates me is, is, is that that is one of our common denominators. That is our united and oldest bad habit, is that we left from one place and went to another. If we hadn't, humanity would not exist, not not in a way as we as we know it and respect it and are part of it. Mm. So that's what angers me. But the fact that I, haven't, I don't belong anywhere, no, I've, I've never belonged anywhere. Mm. Yeah. Poetry runs through your work, as does hip-hop. Did you come to poetry through hip-hop or...? to hip-hop through poetry? I came to hip-hop through poetry. Well, rather, through my basketball coach when I lived in Dublin. And um, and um, he just plied us with so much Shakespeare, we began to love it, really. And I was hanging around the basketball team who listened to hip-hop endlessly. So eventually we began to sort of listen to the best of 90s hip-hop whilst dissecting like 18th century English poetry. <laughs> so, so How does Shakespeare fit into basketball? Um, not, in, not, not Shakespeare specifically, but in terms of um, what we were trying to do, we were trying to deconstruct um, classic language, classic, classic sort of literature and sort of confines of poetry that um, Shakespeare wrote into. And the similarities in that and the confines of hip-hop and what um, rappers try to do with text and the confines of the music of their existence, the things that are faced in the everyday life, kind of the similarities between those sort of um, forms um, and what poets try to do and what rappers try to do. Your work covers a huge array of genres. You do poetry, you do plays, you do graphic design. But yeah. I s- saw you also do something called The Midnight Run, which yeah. is a 12-hour exploration of a city. It sounds fascinating. Tell us about that. Yeah, it's one of the best things I do every every day. Sorry, every year, if I did it every day. My God. <laughs> um, every year. And I train five or um, five people on how to do them in the UK. So essentially, I gather complete strangers. Um, local to a city to explore the streets of their own city from 6pm to 6am or from 6pm to midnight and invite local artists to run workshops and interactions during the course of the midnight run. And we walk, we don't run. Midnight run just sounds sexier than midnight walk. Um, (laughs) And um, it's very interactive and it's about just creating the space for play and genuine interaction between complete strangers. Like, people don't ask that, you know, what do you earn for, you know, for a living or what do you do for a living? They ask questions like what is your favourite colour and why is it your favorite color tell me a story attached to that and i know that's we just sort of prime each other and search each other for sort of really authentic um sort of interactions and that is what the midnight run really is about is a safe space for adults specifically to play to become inventive curious individuals all over again mm-hmm. yeah we had two this year in perth at the start of the year in which perth? Are, yeah wow. which is really awesome yeah 
<laughs> You've been performing black t-shirt collections since 2012. Is is that is that right? That was yeah, that was the first time it was performed. Yeah, so I've been doing it on and off since then. I've so it's a, obviously a topic that deals with topical themes. Has it changed much over those? Um, it's times? just become more and more relevant. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I, have this, I believe that poets kind of flirt with mysticism and something clairvoyant in the things they sort of engage with. And for poems, for poetry to exist, it needs to sort of be like a timeless island, something that floats that is that is in and of itself. Um, and I think because lots of my plays come from attempts to write poetry, that element sort of circles and, you know, the things that I create. So um, the last time I performed Barbershop, a black t-shirt collection before now was um, in 2013 in Pakistan, I think. It was in Sydney. Uh, it's a bit of a blur. Um, <laughs> but I've revisited the, you know, the play four years later and it's even more more um, sort of timely it feels because immigration is such um, uh, such uh, sort of a, an epic global conversation um, um, right now in Australia you guys are debating laws to do with homosexual rights again very timely in Nigeria that hasn't quelled in any way shape or form um, so yeah it's, it just feels very current I was surprised at how current it felt when I was rememorizing the play I thought oh my god all of these things are still working it's kind of depressing in some ways yeah exactly so, um, you were talking before about immigration there is a trend towards anti-immigration policy in Australia and across the world increasingly. Yeah. What's the mood like in England uh, post-Brexit especially? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it's it's a shark-infested waters. It's, yeah. it's horrible. There, I mean, huh. There are immigrants who are just attacked now in certain streets in London. A guy was hospitalised for it. Yeah, in parts of Croydon, parts of London. You know, this is a young guy. I think it was from um, um, uh, Syria or so. Just attacked on the streets of London. Like that's like you know, um, yeah. It's it's been kind of horrific. And the the government have passed laws to make it even more um, difficult. The, The government put out a statement to make England, the United Kingdom, Great Britain, a hostile environment for immigrants, and that is a direct quote and they did a a slew of things to make that happen one of the things they've done is that they've made um, doctors and nurses have to check the nationalities of their patients and those who may have questionable who they suspect of having questionable um, you know immigration status they have to report them to the home office which essentially means that medical staff have to racially profile people walking through the doors so this is current um, policy immigration policy in the UK keep that to yourself before the Australian government (laughs) borrow (laughs) borrow that one Uh, look I've got to ask you um, this question you mentioned before you went to Buckingham Palace to meet the Queen yeah. in Australia we kind of feel like everyone in Britain is always popping into me yeah. <laughs> what, what was that like it Definitely must be bizarre not the, case. Um, the first time was for um, a reception for people working in the performing arts so I went there as a theatre maker the second time was for people working in poetry so I went the second time as a poet and each time it was just surreal the first time I was kind of nervous I went I bought a, a, a new suit I tried to look as I don't know pristine as formal as possible and it was just like a piss up, really. It was just, a, <laughs> it was just people drinking you know, copious amounts of champagne and trying to look formal and staggering around the place. But it was, it was kind of nice just being there. And I remember um, there's this incident that happened where um, there were young performers and they were performing elements, um, aspects, those scenes from Romeo and Juliet. And um, and um, when when the performance finished, everyone kind of stood up and um, for the for the Queen and Prince Philip to leave the space. Then there was this awkward silence where no one knew what to do after that. <laughs> and then Helen Mirren broke the silence. She just she just she just thanked the performers. And I like that in that space she became the default royal. Like she just, yeah. she just, she just took over. It was really it was really charming. And the second time, um, I just felt more comfortable. So I didn't go as formal. I was wearing some traditional Nigerian attire. And yeah, that was just more of a, of a laugh because you I kind of knew what, knew you what were to doing expect. Then. Yeah, yeah. like I was picking places to sleep. Like I'm not moving there. I'm gonna, you know. Yeah. I was just. I remember my little sister asked me to steal toilet paper for her. <laughs> she wanted to wipe her ass when the queen wipes her ass. <laughs> That's right. I, and I did that. Like, oh I stole toilet paper of her because it's logical, right? I'm, oh, you know. wow, of course. Yeah. Anyway, now you've said that, you might not be invited back. <laughs> <laughs> you know, right, I've burned every bridge. <laughs> Never again. <laughs> the show is Black T-shirt Collection. It's on now at the Art Centre until 10th of September. 10th of September, we'll be talking to the writer and performer in UR, Eliams. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Three, triple, ah. Uh, I tell you what, 
else, something that's sad. Uh, so yesterday the, the High Court uh, deemed the postal survey about same-sex marriage will go ahead. Um, and I I was in um, in a barber shop <laughs> sitting there waiting to get a haircut on Twitter because I knew the it was coming out at quarter past two. So I'm on Twitter, just refresh, 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 refresh. And then it popped up that it was going ahead. And I'm, I was so... I wasn't ready for it at all. Like it was, you know, I didn't thought too much about it, but at the time I was like, this, I, I just I had hope that that it wouldn't go through and then was working out what the next plan would be if this postal thing didn't go ahead. And then so it really took me by by surprise. I was quite shocked. Um, and, and it was just this thing where I just, um, I just sat next to you know, straight white men or waiting to get a haircut, just uh, just crying in a barbershop because I've just lost my, you know, people, this is, it's, it's weird because it's a human right, like it's, and people go on about this and, and it's, I just, I just want to be treated equally, like we all want to be treated equally and the idea that we have to go, people have to fill out a form and it's, and it's so, I hadn't thought about how draining this whole thing is. Like, you know, you know, we talk now about, um, you know, we have to stand up and we have to fight now and we have to, you know, but gosh, it's hard. It's so hard. It's so tiring because it it just kind of just each little bit, it's like, I don't want to fight about this. It's for me, it's just like, it's so simple it's so simple. It's just like Article 16 of the human rights is people should be able to get married. It's two consenting adults getting married. What's what's the problem? And it's hard. It's so hard to find different ways of saying that and convincing people that that I and everybody else like me that we're all equal. Do you know what's even more interesting here <clears throat> is that you are like that's your emotional response to that is so friggin' valid. It's ridiculous, and I mm. hate that we have to do this. And I hate for all of my friends, you know, um, that are going through this that they have to keep, you know, that they have to fight it and they have to. But there's a piece in the Guardian today that actually discusses how ridiculous it is that we're having this debate at the moment, and it points out. I guess what we've known for some time, but it kind of gives statistics for it, that Australia's politicians have been so far behind public opinion in this for nearly nearly over a decade. Yeah. That's how long they've been. Um, and it, it kind of makes a point that in a representative democracy, you, you know, politicians don't automatically vote according to the majority view. So this is an issue on which the most of Australia has said that they support marriage equality yeah. for a long... For, for since a lo- I think 2007. Since I think. about 2007. Yeah. It's kind of quite mind-boggling. And they this piece really details kind of the numbers and goes through how Labor was voting as only th- two or three years ago was saying that they were anti-marriage equality, right? Yeah. Am I right in saying yeah. that? Yep. Uh, so Tony Burke voted no in 2012. Um, sorry, I cut you off. No, no, keep uh, going. No, please. Yeah, so uh, I just, want, just, I just a whole bunch. No, um, we're talking about the same. This guy, our, our corn piece. Yeah. Um, a whole bunch of um, Labor politicians who previously voted no are now saying they voted yes. Really interesting, though. They have the stats. Um, the overwhelming sentiment for marriage equality, according to the latest. Um, opinion polls in every demographic. Yeah, it's the, isn't that amazing? Yeah. So it's not just this... It's not just the young people, it's every demographic. Not. And including in um, the, the electorates of prominent opponents such as Tony Abbott. I was just about to say, so all other... So 149 lower house electorates had majority support. So there was only one seat that they uh, could identify, which was Maranoa, which is a conservative seat in southwestern Queensland. And that was the only one they could identify in a 2013 poll. I think that's right, as being uh, anti-marriage equality. All the other 149 lower house electorates had majority support for change. And that includes, like you said, uh, the uh, seats of Tony Abbott, Kevin Andrews, uh, Andrew Hastie, um, 
marriage support in Warringah is one of the most... So Warringah is one of the most supportive electorates in the country, ranking 14th out of all the seats with more than 70% backing marriage equality. That's what makes this even more ridiculous. We're being forced Mm. by people who have been so out of step with our our opinions on this to to go and have a vote, and and not even a vote, to cast a ballot and an unbinding one at that. It's kind of... I think we mentioned this another time, but we should reiterate as well that the vast majority of religious believers also support marriage equality. So the Australian Christian lobby represents a tiny, tiny minority. Um, Majority of Catholics support marriage equality. Majority of um, Protestants support Catholic equality. I also wanted to say, now this is going ahead, I think we maybe need to talk about um, the need to campaign and what that entails. Yeah. Because even though the, the, the statistics are there, you still have to get people out to vote. And uh, mm. the, the Guardian survey says that the vast majority of people say that they are going to vote. And in fact, interestingly, people who are going to vote yes are more determined to vote than people who say they're going to vote no, which I thought might be the other way around. But it was kind of interesting, which is a good sign as well. But so what kind of things can people do? I mean... Social media is one thing, but it tends to only reach people that already share your opinions. So, you know, it would be great for people, for instance, to grab some leaflets. You can download them from the various um, campaigning groups. Put put them in your neighbours' letterboxes. Yeah. If you work in a cafe, something like that, put up a poster. Yeah. Put something I, up in your tea room. For, for, I think uh, one of the best ways is to... Um, I think I know the marriage equality has a video going around at the moment called um, the hashtag call your rello, uh, as in call a relative. So there's a, a woman that calls her grandmother and asks which way she's going to vote. Um, the uh, grandmother's like, oh, normally I'd go with the church. but That's a beautiful video. and But that's the most powerful thing that you can that I think you can do is to reach out in a one-on-one civil conversation of this is this is what it is. Um, and, I, you know, I think it's hard to say no to an individual. Yes. It's hard to, you you're know. Right. yeah. And be confident because you've got majority support on your side. Also, lots, if you belong to any kind of organisation, most unions have um, are doing things in, in support of a yes vote. But even if you belong to a sporting club or to a church group, move a motion, get them to put up a poster, get them to put up a sign outside the house, all of that sort of stuff creates an atmosphere that not only makes people more likely to vote yes, but encourages people to actually get out there and send their ballot paper. And to vote in the first place. And yeah. just some important information as well. The surveys, we're going to start hitting mailboxes on September 12. Uh, you should have one no later than September 26. So if you don't receive one by September 26, uh, you have to request a replacement uh, by October 18 via the ABS website. And it's highly recommended that the surveys are mailed back to the ABS by October 27 to ensure they receive them in time. So there's some important dates yeah. um, for you to remember. And Jess, we've just had some really beautiful messages of support come through for you. And um, my friend George has texted oh, as I'm well gonna... for you. And it's now, now I want to cry. <laughs> no, I'm gonna, I'll cry in a minute. But also, um, just to, to people need to know that, you know, if they do need help, there are places they can go to and feel free to reach out there um, and contact uh, places such as Switchboard, QLife, Headspace and Lifeline. Thank you very much. And uh, I think you said it really well last night after your show, Jez. If you know anyone in the LBGT, LGBTQI community, <laughs> sorry, I'm not very good with that one, just um, give them all the support you can and give them a hug because we've got a full-on couple of weeks ahead of us. You're listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR.